The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Back in December of last year, I did a five-part series on Berean distinctives. And I taught these five topics in which I believe I taught them in the order of their importance, all right? The first study was on free grace. To me, nothing is more important than that subject. And when I say free grace, I'm indicating an opposition to the teaching of lordship salvation. I was lordship much of my Christian life, okay? As a matter of fact, every doctrine I hold, I believed the opposite before, okay? So I know both sides because I've, I've been on both sides. That's, that's how the Lord deals with a hard head. He shows you, okay, look how wrong you were for all these years, okay? So, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so those who hold to the Lordship theology believe that if a person is a true Christian, and they use that word true because there's true and false Christians, I guess, which I don't see that in Scripture, but they must live a righteous, obedient life. Now, if you ever want to question them on this, just ask them how much obedience is necessary. That should shut them down, because if they say 100%, you're done. Now, anything less than that, well, how, how much do, am I doing? You know, where, where's the line drawn? Okay. Well, they, these people who hold to, to lordship would say that good works are necessary for salvation. So they're combining, no matter how they put it, they're combining works with salvation. They say without a practical righteousness, there's no reason for a person to consider himself a Christian. And one of their mantras are, no fruit, no root. Right? You ever heard that? Bunch of fruit inspectors, okay? The free grace view teaches that a person becomes a Christian when they understand and believe the gospel. Okay? At that moment, at the moment they trust Christ, they are placed into the body of Christ, they are given Christ's righteousness, they are indwelt by God, and they are as sure of heaven as if they were already there. Because they are in union with Christ. Now, every time I talk about the free grace position, or every time I attempt to talk to somebody about the fact that good works are not part of the gospel, they're not necessary for salvation, that a person is saved by what they believe, faith alone, not by what they do, James 2 always comes up. And people say, what about James? And that's good because that means they understand their Bible a little bit, you know, because if they know what James says. Let's look at what James has to say. James 2.14 says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works. Faith cannot save him, can it? Now, this translation is based on the original Greek, and it's crucial to a correct interpretation of this. The form of the question that James asked here in the last part of the verse is one in which he expects a negative answer. So the expected answer from James' point of view would be, no, faith cannot save him. That alone should trouble you right there. We're like, okay, what's going on here? This verse has been appealed to over the centuries to support the idea that works are necessary for eternal life. 
This could well be one of the most difficult verses in the Bible because it's surrounded by so much confusion and so many different interpretations. And this is a passage that people are going to run to to say that works are necessary for salvation. This verse in James caused Martin Luther to call James the epistle of straw and even question its inclusion into the canon of Scripture. Luther didn't believe it should be in the canon. Now here's the problem if you haven't already seen it, James seems to be contradicting the biblical teaching of salvation by faith alone. He seems to be contradicting the reform principle of sola fide, faith alone. I mean, let's look at what James says in chapter 2. First of all, he says, can that faith save him? And again, the answer is negative. No, it can't. In verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. He says in verse 20, faith apart from works, useless. He says in verse 26, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James says without a doubt that works are necessary for salvation. That's clearly what he says here. You can't get around that, okay? Now let me ask you a question. Do you hold to the verbal inspiration of Scripture? Do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? If you do, then you have to admit something is wrong here. Either Scripture contradicts itself, or we're interpreting something wrong. (laughs) Which one of those are you more comfortable with, okay? Hopefully it's offer number two, okay? Now, Let me ask you this. What is the primary rule of hermeneutics? Okay, that's right. But it's called the analogy of faith. This is the prime. Hermeneutics, we've gone over hermeneutics all the time. I understand. You know that uh, audience relevance is important, okay? This crowd understands that. There's other rules to hermeneutics, okay? And the first and foremost is called the analogy of faith, and what that means is Scripture interprets Scripture. It means no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as renders it in conflict with what's taught elsewhere in the Word of God. Can't do it. So this tells us right here that something is wrong here. Scripture doesn't contradict itself. So we must be interpreting something wrong. James is not discussing a doctrine of salvation which is based only on faith. James insists that works are necessary for salvation. Now, many interpreters have seen James as standing in opposition to the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith alone. I'm sure you can understand that. Let's look a little bit at what Paul says to compare it with James Romans 3, 24 says, uh, and are justified by His grace as a gift. We can stop right there. That is just an amazing statement. The word gift here is the Greek word dorea. It means for nothing, gratuitously, or gift-wise. And then the word grace here is the Greek word charis, which means unmerited favor, kindness shown to one who is utterly undeserving. So in the phrase, as a gift by His grace, the idea of free is redoubled to show that our justification is all of God. Okay? All of God. He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation. Big word. You familiar with propitiation? You understand what it means? The alleval of wrath, the removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is Christ. He says propitiation by His blood. That's metonymy for His death. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier. This is cool. Listen. God is just. How can He be just when He justifies sinful people? He's just because He paid the sin debt. So justice has been satisfied in His Son. Therefore, He can justify us. So He can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Yeshua. Then what becomes of our boasting? Not, not. It's excluded. You can't boast. God did it. Okay? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Sounds like he got a problem with James. Paul says that a man is justified by faith apart from works and not that's not what James is saying people that's clearly not what he's saying Romans 4 5 to the one who does not work but believes it's like he read James and he said let me straighten James out here okay in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteous does that sound like it contradicts James James says faith alone cannot save. Paul says it's the only thing that can. Paul says it's all of faith and works play no part. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 11.6 But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying grace and works are mutually exclusive. If salvation is by grace, then works play no part. Now, can you understand why people have a problem reconciling James and Paul? James says, faith alone cannot save. And Paul says, faith alone saves. Martin Luther, using Romans, began the Reformation on the principle of sola fide, faith alone. No wonder he called James a right strawy epistle. James clearly states that works are necessary for salvation. Now, many expositors, <clears throat> they've tried to harmonize James and Paul, but all harmonizations with the doctrine of sola fide are awkward and forced. Guthrie says this, It may well be that James is correcting a misunderstanding of Paul, or vice versa, but it cannot be said that James and Paul are contradicting each other. Is that one of the stupidest things you've ever read? <laughs> what are you saying is one of these guys is wrong, and the other one's straightening them out. They may be correcting a misunderstanding. So in other words, one of them was wrong? What about inspiration? How can an inspired writer of God's be wrong? The Bible, all of it is God's inspired word. Zodiades says this, Paul and James do not stand face to face fighting against each other, but back to bite back-to-back fighting different foes. Or if you're fighting opposite foes, you're kind of fighting each other. James is fighting the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, and Paul is teaching the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, then James is fighting Paul. Albert Barnes, commenting on this passage in James, says this, He doubtless had in his eye those who abused the doctrine of justification by faith. 
Okay, now this is important because this is so common today. They abuse the doctrine of justification by faith by holding that good works are unnecessary to salvation. That's not an abuse of the doctrine. That is the doctrine, provided they maintain an orthodox belief, as this abuse probably existed in the time of the apostles, and as the Holy Ghost saw that there would be a danger that in the latter times the great and glorious doctrine of justification by faith would be abused. It was important that the error should be rebuked, and that the doctrine should be distinctly laid down that good works are necessary to salvation. And again, the question we have to ask as thinking people, how much good works are necessary? If I'm talking salvation or damnation, how, how many good works do I have to do? How, what's the percentage? I, I got to know that. I mean, inquiring minds want to know, right? This is salvation. He says, the apostles, therefore, in the question before us, implicitly asserts that faith would not profit at all unless accompanied with a holy life. And this doctrine he proceeds to illustrate in the following verses. So according to Mr. Barnes, we're saved by faith plus works. In other words, we have to earn our way into heaven by good works. Now, Barnes' statement here, faith would not profit at all unless accompanied with a holy life. I think that probably is held by most people in the church today. That's just what they believe. There's some, it's dependent on me to to do this stuff or I'm not going to get in. Well, contrary to these guys, John Stone writes this, that faith can save a man and that nothing else can is written throughout the scriptures as with a pencil of light. Amen. I agree wholeheartedly. The scriptures clearly teach that salvation is by faith alone. Now, because of the conflict between James and Paul, a desperate effort has been made to avoid the impact of James 2.14 by translating it this way. Can that faith save him? You see what they're saying? Not faith. That faith. In other words, that's the wrong, you got the wrong faith. That's why, you know, you're not, you're not right. You got the wrong faith. That faith the ESV has, or uh, the NIV says, such faith, indicating There's a kind of faith that doesn't save. Now the question you have to ask, how do I know I got the good kind? The right kind, right? All right, translating it this way is an unjustified exaggeration of what's called the article of previous reference in the Greek and has nothing to commend it here. The article of previous reference says that since there is a definite article with faith, the faith, ten piston, We can substitute words such as that faith or such faith. With abstract nouns like faith or love, the article is perfectly normal when the noun is used as the subject. The construction of James 2.14 is identical to that found in 1.4 that says this, but let steadfastness have its full effect. But nobody attempts to translate this, but let that steadfastness or let such steadfastness have its full effect. So it doesn't work here. They just use it in that verse because they're trying to make that verse say something different. The construction, the identical construction, is found in 1 Corinthians 14.3. That love, or such love. No, they don't do that. Same construction. Matter of fact, in James 2, the definite article also occurs with faith in verses 17, 18, 20, 22, 26. You look in your Bible, you see any that faith or such faith in any of those verses? Nope. 
And I think the attempt to single out 214 for special treatment carries its own refutation. We just refute that, okay? That's ridiculous. Why would they try to change what James is saying? Well, what they're trying to do, they're trying to make James say that it is a certain kind of faith that saves you. But James' point is, and listen, the the church has bought into this, okay? Because people will ask you, did you believe with your head or your heart? Say, well, dummy, my heart's a muscle that pumps blood. Doesn't believe anything, okay? We'll talk about that more in a minute here. James' point is clear. Faith alone cannot save. So did James really disagree with Paul on salvation being by grace through faith alone? Notice what James writes in James 1, 17 and 18. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Many, many years ago, I was teaching through the book of James, and I got to this passage. I was an Arminian. This passage was my undoing as an Arminian, okay? Because it says, of his own will. And I said, what about my will? And then I started doing research, and I said, oh, okay, this doesn't play a part in salvation. It's God's will that makes the difference. Of his own will brought he forth. All right. So James saying, well, good gifts come from God, and salvation is one of those good gifts. God, by a sovereign act of his own will, gives us grace and faith to believe in his word. James sees the new birth as a sovereign act of God. So James and Paul were fundamental, in fundamental harmony on the way eternal life is received. For both of them, it's a gift of God, graciously and sovereignly bestowed. Well, what's the problem? How do we deal with what he's saying then? I mean, what does he mean when he says, can that faith save him? All right. What I want to do here is bring in another rule of hermeneutics. Okay, now we've got to have three here. Okay, we already know about audience relevance. All right. And this is an important rule that I think is really neglected today. And that rule is this. Determine carefully the meaning of words. And people read their Bible and they say, we're coming on a cloud. I know what a cloud is. No, you don't understand that. I know what heaven and earth is. No, you really don't. You have to determine how the Bible uses those words. Well, here the Greek verb sozo, which is translated save, sozo has a wide range of possible meanings. James is written primarily, he says, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So his audience is Jewish. Being Jewish, they have a good handle on the Tanakh. And the way that sozo is used in the Septuagint is primarily a physical deliverance. Primarily. Now, you have an English reader, and they read save, and their primary meaning is what? To save from judgment, right? So they don't even think of save used in that way. Although we should, because if you read the Bible... You know, you remember coming across Paul, he's on his way to Rome, and the ship is just a big mess, and they're trying to figure out how to save their lives, and they're, they're, some men are trying to escape from the ship, and Paul says, hey guys, come here. Unless you abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Oh my word, we got to get on a ship to get saved, right? I haven't heard somebody twist it that way yet. I mean, I guess that verse is a little hard to twist. But sozo, same word. He's talking about physical deliverance there. You guys are, you're going to lose your life 
if you leave this ship, he tells him. So, again, a wide range of meaning. We narrow it down to meaning eternal life. No. Rescue from danger. It does apply to spiritual deliverance and various kinds of perseverance from final judgment. We have to determine the meaning of sozo from the context. So we have to ask, how is James using it? Well, let's look at his uses in some other parts of the letter. Let's go to the end of the book, James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers. All right, yes, he's writing to Jewish Christians, but I think when he says brothers here, he's identifying them as believers. If any among you wanders from the truth. Unbelievers don't wander from the truth. They live in the untruth, okay? They don't wander away from it because they're always away from it. And he says, and someone brings him back. So here's a believer, and they're wandering away. Someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. The word soul here is the Greek word suhe, and it should be translated as life. All right? And I think when you do that, it makes things a little bit clear here, because the verb sozo makes that clear, is referring to preservation of physical life from death. I think that's fairly clear in this verse. You will save his life from death. If that sinner keeps walking away from God, God's going to deal with that. This expression here that we see here, it's sozen tensuhe in the Greek. It's a standard, it's a normal way of saying to save the life. Matter of fact, there is no text in the Greek Bible where it can be shown to have the meaning to save the soul from eternal damnation. It's not used that way ever. All right, so that's important. The theme of the book of James is found in verse 21 of chapter 1. Therefore, put away filthiness. He's talking to Christians, you Christians. Put away filthiness, rampant wickedness, Receive with meekness the word that has been implanted, which is able to save your life. Again, suhe. And he's saying, abide by the word of God. Live the word of God. It will save your life. Listen, James is telling these Christians. He's telling them they can save their lives. They're already born again. From the damage that sin brings if they will walk in holiness. James is a perfect partner to Paul, because when you teach Pauline doctrine of grace alone, people are like, well, then I can sin all I want, and James goes, it'll kill you. It'll kill you. Okay? That's what he's telling you. He has already, in this epistle, warned them of the damage that sin brings. 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Uh, He must have messed up there. Isn't it the devil that does that? Wait a minute, wait a minute. He's tempted when he is lured and enticed. No, it says his own desire. Imagine that. We can be tempted and because of what's in us, (laughs) our own rottenness, we can be tempted and led away. We don't need the devil. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Again, people, he's writing to believers. And in verse 21, he suggests that the antidote to the kind of consequences spoken of in verse 15 is the life-saving capacity of the Word of God. 
This theme that James talks about here is repeated over and over in the Proverbs. Look at um, Proverbs eleven nineteen. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. We see that all through the Proverbs, that's, and that's how it uses the salvation a whole lot in there. Okay, when you pursue righteousness, it brings life. The pursuit of sin brings death. In James 1, 21-25, James says that his readers will be saved from the destruction that sin brings if they are doers rather than hearers of the Word. And in chapter 2, 14-26, he is saying they will be saved in the same sense, not by what they believe, faith, but by what they do about what they believe, which is works. Now, the reason that James 2.14 seems to be contradicting the doctrine of justification by faith alone is because we have the wrong subject. James is not talking about eternal life and how to obtain it. James is writing about preserving temporal life and the damage that sin brings to the life of a believer. Like I said, James is a perfect companion for Paul. And all those people who say, oh, free grace is a license of sin. No, James straightens you all out about that stuff, okay? He's straightening you out on it. Sin brings death. James 2, look at James 2, 12. See, often we start at verse 14, and if you, in your Bibles, (laughs) in your Bibles, there's probably a break at verse 14. And so it looks like, okay, a separate paragraph. So you start at verse 14, and that's just not how it should be, okay? So let's look at James 2, 12 through 14, kind of keep it in context here. He's saying, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So he's talking about judgment here. Shut the phone off. It's not hard. It's not hard. I need I want to get a little screen that says, please silence your cell phone. Like at the movie like at the movie theater, all right? So James is saying, so speak and so act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. All right, carry and conduct your life as you're going to be judged before it. All right? Now watch, he says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then he says, what good is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? So James is asking, does the fact that you are a believer save you from the temporal judgment of God? No, not if you're living in sin. His question, again, demands a negative answer. The idea of temporal judgment in the life of a believer is taught throughout the Word of God, I think. Paul's always calling believers to live a holy, righteous life because sin damages the life. Matthew 18 is a good passage to look at this. The Lord's talking about forgiveness. In verse 32, he says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all because you pleaded with me. Remember the story? He goes to his master, plead, forgive me, I forgive you. Then he's got another slave, another believer comes to him and says, Oh, forgive me and I'll pay you. And he grabs him by the throat and he says, You pay me now. You know, and I'm like, Wait a minute, you're forgiven. Why can't you? So God says, I forgave you. The master here is God. The forgiveness he's speaking of is redemption. I forgave you. You pleaded with me. And then he says, in verse 33, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Doesn't the Bible call us to do that? See, compassion 
Mercy is a work that the believe, this believer is not doing. And verse 34 says, And in anger his master, who is God, delivered him, the believer, to the jailers until he should pay his debt. That's a lousy translation. Jailers. Because, you know, we're 21st century American Christians. We think of jail as, okay, you got a TV in your room, you know, you got weights in the gym, you can work out, you can do, you know, you got a law library so you can work on your appeal. You know, that's what we think of a jail. The word here is basinistes, and it means torturer. Wow, I guess Yeshua, where did he get that word from? Why would he use that? Because let me tell you something. If you know a believer who's living in sin, you probably know a tortured person. Either mentally, emotionally, whatever. There's all kinds of things here. But God, he says he's going to turn them over to the torturers. So we got a forgiven believer being turned over to the torture because of sin in his life. Verse 35 tells us that God will do the same thing to us if we don't forgive our brothers. So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. The Christianity is all about forgiveness. It's about being forgiven, and then you can't forgive somebody else? Well, something's wrong there. And God will deal with that. Okay? God will bring temporal judgment on those believers who do not live out the principles of their faith. So James is saying, if your faith doesn't work, if it doesn't live out the teaching of Christ, you will suffer temporal judgment because of it. So, when James says, can that faith save them? The solution to the problem is simply understanding the correct subject. You know, no text can be read correctly when the writer's real subject is not perceived. James' subject is deliverance from temporal judgment. Physical preservation, all right? Not eternal redemption. He has already made it perfectly clear eternal life is a gift of God's sovereign choice. Now, Someone is bound to be thinking, well, are you trying to tell us that for all these centuries the Christian teaching of the church has messed this passage up? Yep. I don't have a problem with that. You know, they got a lot of things wrong. Do you consider yourself a Protestant? Well, guess what they got wrong then at the Reformation? They were all messed up on salvation. And we needed a Reformation to straighten things out? Would you have discouraged Martin Luther or John Calvin? Because, hey, Church can't be wrong all these years on this. Come on, guys. Emperor Charles V said of Luther at the Diet of Worms, a single friar who goes counter to all Christianity for a thousand years must be wrong. No. I mean, we'd all agree with Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, Cramner. We all agree with these guys, right? I mean, they got it right. They restored the whole idea of salvation is by grace alone because the Catholic Church had buried it and it made it all about works. The greatest conviction of the Reformation was the supremacy of an appeal to scriptures over the tradition of the church. And today the church has locked itself into some traditions that are just, you know, and a lot of the traditions and a lot of the teachings the church holds today are beneficial to the pastor as far as keeping the people in line, okay? Scare them a little. All right, use some psychological manipulation on them. You know, keep them in fear. Um, teach them if they don't tithe, they're going to hell. You know, that kind of stuff. All right. <laughs> Listen, we need to stand in the fundamental principle of the Reformation sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. 
The way I see it, we have only two options. We either see James opposing Paul and denying sola fide, or we see he's using a whole different subject. As I've already said, every time I talk to someone about the fact that salvation is by grace alone, their first response is, what about James? It's not too strong, I think, to say that a misreading of James 2, 14-26 is one of the most tragic, interpretive blunders in the history of the church. Because it causes people to question their salvation. And I don't think there's anything more damaging than a believer who doesn't feel they're saved. They're not convinced of their salvation. Therefore, they're always worrying. They're always, what, what if I you know, messed up? What? They have no assurance of their standing. And I believe you'll never live a holy life in victory unless you're completely sure you have that victory already. Okay? Assurance motivates us to live for God. So if good works are really a condition or an essential fruit of salvation, then I never can be really sure about my eternal salvation. Because how do I know I'll quit working someday? And I have actually heard John Piper say that himself. He says, how do I know that after 50 years of serving God, I won't quit? And, you know, and he's like, he's not sure. He's a, so the way he knows he's a Christian is he's doing some things, you know. An insistence on the necessity of works undermines assurance and postpones it logically until death. Because when an end can't be achieved apart from certain things being done, then those things logically become conditions for the end in view. To add works to faith is to make works essential. Now, you know, people say, well, what about this person? What about that person? I knew this guy, and he said he was a Christian, and now he's doing this, and, you know, we want to figure everybody else out. It's not that simple, people. I know a man that was very active in the Christian faith. I studied with him. I prayed with him. He had a heart for God. At one point in his life, he turned and he walked away from God, and he got involved in sin. I think a life of sin makes people turn away from God because if they're going to live in sin, they don't really want to believe in God. Okay, so I think it's more your lifestyle that dictates your theology, and that's a bad thing. Well, many people would look at this man like I said, well, he wasn't really saved. That maybe, I don't know. I thought he was. Like I said, I felt like I had fellowship with him. But if that's the case, if he wasn't really saved, how do you know you are? So, well, I'm doing good right now. What about tomorrow? Is your assurance based on works, or is it based on grace? Please notice clearly what John says about salvation. John 3, 14, very familiar passage. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Okay, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, so he's using an illustration here of the children of Israel in the wilderness. You know, what did they have to do when they had bit by this poisonous snake and they were dying? What did they have to do? They had to go to the altar, they had to repent. They had to uh, start tithing, join the church. What what did these people have to do? Look at the serpent. What? That's all they had to do? That's what he said. Look. And what's the illustration? Look to Christ, all right? The same is true of you. You're saved by looking to Christ for your redemption. Not list the whole other things you have to do. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish. It's believers that don't perish. But he'll have eternal life, for God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You think you see anything in this passage about works? Here's the important thing with this stuff in the Gospel of John. John is the only book in the Bible specifically written to bring men to saving faith. That's what John says in the end. These things are written that you may believe Yeshua is the Christ, and believing you may have life in His name. Only book specifically said to be written to bring people to faith. And yet, John doesn't mention repentance in this book. So whenever those people say, well, repentance is... Repentance, the Greek word is metanoia, means to change your mind. So if you want to go by the etymology of the word, I agree. you got to change your mind. You didn't believe in Christ, now you do. That's a change of mind. Most people say repentance, though, is turning from sin... You know, to obedience. And I'm like, mm, okay, that's not really the etymology of the word, and that doesn't fit in any of these passages. All right. It's all about faith. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment. He's passed from death to life. John 6, 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what do we do to be doing the works of God. We want to do the works of God. Yeshua answers him, this is the work of God that you believe. <laughs> that's God's work, right? God does it. You believe that's the work of God. And him who he has sent. The work of God is the faith that he works in you. If you believe it's a work of God, because you cannot believe apart from God's sovereign working in your life. John eight twenty four. I told you, you die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And by saying the I am there, I think he's referring to the tetragrammaton, the sovereign name of God, the covenant name of God. Unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I'm God, you'll die in your sins. No works in that verse. John 11, 25 and 26, Yeshua said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Twenty thirty one. These things are written, the book of John. These are written, these signs that I've laid out here. They're written so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in His name. This is why John wrote the epistle, that you would believe in all all through faith. People, I think the Scriptures are clear. Eternal life is free to all those who believe. On the authority of Yeshua, the believer can know that he has eternal life the very moment he believes God for it. But I think the church today has adopted the theology of individual psychology that's taught by Dr. Albert Adler, who says, trust only in movement. Okay, so he says, we're not what we say we are, what we do. And we have to ask, is, well, is that approach scriptural? Well, someone say, yes, it's biblical. You've you got to judge people by their works. Really? What day? You have a bad day? You want, you want to be judged on that day of your life? You know, and say, well, they cannot be a Christian. Look what they did. Look what they said. And people do this all the time. We sit in judgment on fellow believers. In other words, we're saying, they're not worthy of salvation because they did this. Look at Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 13 through 20. Enter by the narrow gate, for gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You know this gate is narrow? It's really narrow. It's Yeshua only. That's how narrow that gate is. You can't come by any other name. 
That's the only name you'll get in there by. The, na- the gate is narrow, the way is hard, the leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Or, that's not a wolf skin over top of a sheep, or sheepskin over top of a wolf, okay? Sheep's clothing is the garment of a prophet. He would wear a, a garment made of wool, all right? They come to you in sheep's clothing, and inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. See, we're supposed to be fruit inspectors. All right, let's hang on a minute. Then he goes, our grapes gathered through things, or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but every diseased tree, bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. See, you said, I know that we're supposed to be fruit inspectors, right? Isn't that what this passage is teaching? No. What are the fruits here? The fruits are not what these people are doing. The fruits here are what they say. Because we're talking about prophets and their words being wrong. Okay? Look at Matthew 12, 33 and 34. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Then watch what he says. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So fruit is not what they do. Fruit is what they say. If you want to know if a person is a false prophet, you judge them by their words. Listen to John. John 4. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. How do we test them? He says there's a lot of false prophets that have gone out of the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua the Christ has come in the flesh is a God. It's what they say. That's how we're testing them. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. So you spot a false prophet of what they say, out of his heart his mouth speaks. They may live very morally, as a lot of Mormons do, and yet be false prophets. But what if someone says they're a Christian and they're living immorally? Well, and I get this question asked all the time. All right, just last week, some guy, well, well, they're not living right. All right, here's what I do. First thing I do is I go to them and I share the God. I go over the gospel. Do they understand? Do they know and understand the God? Listen, a lot of people say they're Christians that aren't. I am not saying everybody says they're a Christian is. A lot of people say they're Christians because they're Americans. If you're born in America, you're automatically a Christian. It's a Christian country, right? Yeah, just like being in a car, make, in a garage makes you a car. No, it doesn't, okay? So being in a church or in America doesn't make you a Christian, okay? And then once I've gone over the gospel with them, if they say, yes, I believe that, I understand, then I take them at their word. That's all I have, right? And then if they're living in sin, I say, you know the Bible talks about what you're doing is wrong, and God will judge you because of this in a temporal sense. And you try to deal with their sinfulness, and if they ignore you, you bring them under discipline. The reason we do this is not because, you know, we're picking on people with sin. We understand sin brings judgment, and we want to bring people out of that judgment into a life of blessing. All right. How does a person know if they've really believed the gospel? One result of misreading James 2, 14-26 has often been rendering the concept of saving faith. They make it so mystifying that you don't really even know what it is. You don't know if you really believe. You know, can that kind of faith, can such faith? That's a different faith, it's the wrong faith. And those additions have given people the idea they, they may have the wrong kind of faith. 
And that's pretty important. Well, let me make it simple for you. Biblically defined, faith is understanding and assent to the proposition of the gospel. Got it? Simple, all right? Understanding and assent. You understand. You hear the proposition. This is the proposition. I understand it. Now I believe it. For example, I say to you, John, your check is in the mail. Do you believe me or not? John, do you believe me or not? <laughs> He's not sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you're either going to say, yeah, I believe you, or no, I don't. And if you believe me, that's faith, because you can't see the check, you don't have the check, but I told you it's in the mail, and you understand what the mail is, and you understand what a check is. Well, yeah, you might not trust the mail. That's another thing. Or, or you might not trust the person who said that, right? So if someone tells you the check's in the mail, but you don't believe them, then you don't believe what they're saying. It's not because you don't understand what mail is and you don't understand what checks is. It's because you, you don't think they have any character. And Psalm 910 says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. Again, name is character in the Bible. So if you know who God is, you can put your trust in Him. And that's what faith is about. It's about He made promises, you believe them. Look at Romans 20, 21. No unbelief made Him waver, talking about Abraham, concerning the promise of God. So God made Him a promise. But He grew strong in the faith, and He gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what He promised. Abraham believed what God told him. That is faith. And listen, people, this is important. No matter what the subject be, we can, whether we're talking about God or we're talking about botany, the, psycho, the psychology or linguistics of belief is identical in all cases. Believing 2 plus 2 is 4, that's arithmetic. Believing that asparagus belongs to the lily family, that's botany. Botany is not mathematics. But the psychology or linguistics of believing is identical. Christ's promises of salvation are vastly different from the propositions of botany, but believing is always thinking a proposition is true. So people say, well, is faith clear, purely an intellectual exercise? Yes, you believe. That's believing is an intellectual exercise. But you cannot believe unless God gives you life first. So if you believe, you know you've been given life. And then the question comes up, as we talked about earlier, well, maybe they believe with their head and not with their heart. And I've seen gospel tracks missing heaven by 18 inches. Tag, so close. Just believed with the wrong. And do you, you understand how confusing that is to people? Well, because then you start questioning. Well, how do I know if I believe that with my head and my heart? How do I know what I did? Listen, people, I can make it simple for you. There is no such distinction. Okay? The heart for us is a blood pumping organ. To the Hebrews, the heart determined the thinking process. So when they talked about the heart, they meant that's how you think. So they were referring to the mind. You think biblically with your heart. So either you believe something or you don't. And if you believe it, you believe with the right organ. That's the only organ you have to believe with. It's your mind. Okay? Look at Zechariah 8.17. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. You devise it. You plan it. You think it up. It comes from the heart. And the difference between various beliefs 
lies in the objects or the proposition believed, not in the nature of belief. Faith must begin with knowledge. You can't believe what you don't understand. I understand the teaching of evolution. I don't assent to it. I don't believe it. Belief is assenting to something you understand. I understand. And understanding alone is not belief in what's understood. I understand dispensational theology. I taught it. I no longer believe it. I think it's rubbish. So we have to understand this. There are not different faiths. You hear that a lot, right? There's only different objects of faith. And the object of the Christian faith is Yeshua. Non-saving faith would be faith in the wrong propositions. For example, the Catholic faith is a non-saving faith. And it's not saving, non-saving because it counts on the efficacy of works to save. They would say, yes, Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins, but you have to add. So it's not Christ alone. The Mormon faith is a non-saving faith because they deny the deity of the Lord Yeshua Christ, and they also count on the efficacy of works. So non-saving faith would be believing the wrong things. So don't let James, you know, throw you off here. Belief in the truth. Nothing more, nothing less is what separates the saved from the damned. Saving faith is understanding and assent to the propositions of the gospel. It's believing that Christ died to pay the sin debt of all who put their trust in only and completely in Him. If I've trusted Christ as my Savior, I can know that I've trusted Him. Because I know what believing is. I know there's certain things I believe in. You know, I, like, I believe there's a China. I've never been there. I believe there is a China. I believe there's a land called China. I believe that the sun circles the earth. Think about that. I believe that, okay? And I know what I believe. And you can tell me anything different. I know what I believe and I know why I believe it. So I know that I believed in certain things. So don't come along and say, well, you might have the wrong belief. And then this causes you to doubt and question and just puts you in a state of unassurance. And it's a bad place for a Christian to be. Well, then, what is James talking about? What is this dead faith he's talking about? Well, in James 2, 14 through 26, this is the only New Testament passage which speaks of dead faith. And notice the distinction in James is between dead faith and living faith, not false faith and true faith. Okay? So let's look at James' climax of the book. In verse 26, he's, in the passage, he says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So James is drawing an analogy here between dead faith and a dead body. Now, if you were to find a dead body, would you assume, well, he never really was alive? No, you would probably assume, well, he was alive once and he died. And that James can conceive of a dead faith as having once been alive, but a person's faith, like his body, can die. And James compares faith to the body and works to the spirit. Does that seem strange to you? Would you put faith with the Spirit and works with the body? James' point is this. Works are actually the key to the vitality of your faith. And James' analogy shows he's writing about the necessity of having works if our faith is to stay alive. Remember, James is writing to Christians. He's saying unless we act on and live out our faith, our faith will rapidly decay into dead orthodoxy. Good works are the spirit which animates the entire body. 
And without such works, our faith dies. But it doesn't affect our eternal destiny. It does affect our temporal life and the preserving of it from judgment. In other words, you can live a really miserable life right here, Christian, if you don't follow God. James is clearly teaching that works are necessary for salvation in the sense of physical preservation. He states his argument in verse 14, can faith save him? That that is not there. Then he illustrates the argument. Now watch his illustration. Verse 15 through 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, you got to see here that the fact the preserving of life lies at the heart of the illustration. He's talking about preserving life. Can the fact that a man holds the correct beliefs and is orthodox save him from the deadly consequences of sin? Of course not, James says. That's like giving your best wishes to a destitute brother or sister when what they really need is food and clothing. It's utterly fruitless. Neither will your faith do your physical well-being any good as long as you live in sin. Verse 15, he says, uh, to the Jew, this is something we have to understand here. Again, he's writing to Hebrew Christians. Almsgiving was of paramount importance. Ben Sirah said, water will quench a flaming fire and alms maketh atonement for sin. You've got to give, all right? Tobit says, I will behold thy faith by, by faith, thy faiths by almsgiving. So to the Jews of old, much like many today, they made a lot, you know, works were very much part of salvation. And it's easy to see how this passage can be misinterpreted. He states his argument here in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Well, what are works? What's he talking about? What does he mean by works? Well, I think he explains that. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. And that's interesting because that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. If your faith doesn't produce love, James is saying it's a dead faith. And it's in danger of temporal judgment. Now, the moral dynamic of faith is love. And since faith is invisible, a person's possession of faith is dependent upon their verbal testimony alone. I can't see your faith. How can you tell a person has faith? Well, most Christians, well, they don't smoke, they don't drink, they they live a very moral lifestyle, they witness to others about their faith, they give money to the church, they study their Bible, they're a sacrificial, giving person. That's how you spot faith. I've just described a Mormon who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ or salvation by grace alone and will spend eternity separated from God because of his unbelief. But that's how the church judges people. People, faith is static. I can't see your faith unless it's loving. Love is obedience to the revealed will of God. Most people mess this verse up. This verse does not say, if you believe in me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't say that. Could he have said it? Yeah. Why didn't he? Because he's saying, if you love me. That's how you demonstrate. That's how you demonstrate. Love is active. It does something and you can see it. And listen, without love, your faith will die. Verse 17 says, if faith is by itself with no love, it is dead. Believers, faith and works are connected. It's by works that faith grows to maturity. 
As we act on what we believe and live out our Christianity, our faith grows and matures. But if we fail to work, if we fail to love, James is saying your faith will die. And a dead faith, one that is unproductive, is going to come under the temporal judgment of God. So James is saying keep your faith alive. Walk in love. Now we're going to finish this chapter next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, I think James is so critical to our understanding. Understanding he doesn't contradict Paul. He's a perfect complement to Paul. Telling people, yes, it is by grace, but if you don't live in love, you will be disciplined. Temporally, here and now. Help us, Lord, to understand the importance of grace that we may truly live in a manner that honors you, that brings glory to your name. And help us to understand, Lord, that sin is destructive. It's damaging. It ruins the life. Thank you, Lord, for James' clear word to us. Amen. All right. Veronica, you can go. Questions, comments? You're not going? No? Oh. Questions, comments? Yeah, conversations I had the past week, um, I was like, okay, you know, this is, I just think there's so much obscurity here. People don't get this. You know, they they can't connect salvation being by grace through faith alone and people living right. Those two are opposite to them, and they're not opposite. They're connected. So what? Grace has a part, part of it from God. Yeah, grace is, a, it's all of God, all right? Right, it's, you know, great. And again, you know, when you talk about grace, people think right away, oh, then they can live in sin and they can get away with it. No one's getting away with sin, okay? And, I mean, that's foolish to think that. I got a text from Jill said, thanks again for such an important message. It helped to clear up the apparent contradiction between Paul and James. There is so much life coming to me through your teaching of the Word. Thank you, Jill. I am so blessed to be able to hear it every Sunday. Well, thanks to all the people here to make it happen, and I appreciate it too. I'm so blessed to be able to hear it. Thank you for all you do and all, all who are part of Berean Bible Church. Um, make it a way for us participate with you. You know, I, I hopefully after a conference and meeting and being with some of these people who watch us, you understand how important what we do here is to them. You know, it really is. And so I appreciate you being here because when you're here, it kind of fuels me. When this place is empty, it's I feel like I'm in a studio or something, you know. But when you have actually live bodies out here, it uh, gives me more, I don't know, fires me up. Do what? That's right. Same for the band. All right. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, Dana sent me a message um, from California. He said, "Great message," and and he gave me the the scriptures 2009. That's a translation. It's called the scriptures 2009. Here's how they translate Matthew 18:34. And his master was wroth and delivered him to the tortures until she'd pay all that was due him. 
Translation is, <laughs> it makes a big difference, people. It really does. Gary? I might ask a question. Um, so, I'm not sure... My works, if I, I know I don't have enough works. For what? My works are insufficient. You don't have enough for what? Enough for uh, salvation. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, you don't. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you never will. And, but um, how do I know when I have enough love? Enough for what? You will know. Well, I think we are supposed to constantly be growing in love, and hopefully, as we grow in our Christian faith, we love more. And it's you know, again, you know, you have a bad day. I don't think God's going to rain fire and brimstone down on you. You know, God is God is such a gracious God. But when we continue in sin, you know, there is there's a price to pay for that. I mean, it's kind of built in. You know, I mean. You just see people who get off the path, go into different areas, and see what it does to their lives. The pain it causes them. It's built that way. But the other way around, you live for God, and you're in communion with God. You don't have to have a nice environment. You just have that joy in your heart. I mean, Paul, I don't care what you did to him. He was always a joyful, happy, beat him, stick him in jail, whatever. He's praising God, you know. That's what it's about, people. When our joy is not affected by our circumstances, then you know you're making some progress in the Christian life. Okay? Because your circumstances can be really... What? Yeah, I think it does happen. I think it definitely happens. I've met people who've been in what I would consider the worst circumstances and just seen such a joy and such a glow from them. You know, men who have just really rocked my world because I've seen them. And I look at them and I think... How can they do this? And yet they're just, you know, they're so connected with the Lord that they, they're living on a different plane almost. You know, they're just, yeah, they're, they're irritating. You want to be there, though, because you know that, man, that is, you know, that is so cool. You know, we want, we all want the best circumstances, no doubt. Okay, we want easy, we want it, you know, no, it doesn't always work that way. And it's through the trying times that we actually learn and grow, so. Thank God for the trials. <laughs> we don't like to do that, do we? Okay, here's a question that I got. I'm trying to make sure this one's from today. Yeah, Is there any sense in where we can are relying on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit where we are producing any good works? That's the only way we'll produce good works. Okay, is by dependent upon the Spirit. Anything we do in the Christian life. You know, when God asks us to forgive, that's hard for people to do. Okay, when someone offends you, you know, they might even say something about you and you're offended and you can't forgive them. You know, or I've heard of people who, you know, their child has been murdered by someone and they forgive the murder. And they build a relationship with the murderer and share the gospel with the murderer. That's supernatural. That's what we're called to. But because we have the Spirit, we can live on that plane. Yeah, if you're, if you're trusting yourself, you're not going to get very far at all. And that's why, you know, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The, the power is there. We have to just tap into trusting the Spirit. 
All right. Uh, Jillian asks, is this an accurate statement? When you trust Christ and you don't change your behavior, you escape eternal punishment, but not the consequences of your continued behavior. Yes, I'd say that's very accurate. Now, you know, and people always say, well, if they got saved, something has to change. If they got saved, everything changed. Okay? Their position changed. They are new creatures in Christ. But we say, well, it didn't show up in their life. And a lot of factors play in there. Okay? If they're not in a place where they're being taught the Word of God, they don't know how they're supposed to live. If they don't have fellowship around them, there's not someone encouraging them. Hey, that's wrong. You don't know. If they're not reading their Bible, they're never going to learn. They're never going to grow. Those factors are involved. You know, but we want to be fruit inspectors. And we want to say, if they're Christian, they'll do this or not do this. That's just nonsense. Okay? It's just nonsense. We've got to be careful judging one another by our actions. Because like I said, everybody has a bad day. And you don't want to be judged on your worst day. Yeah, saving faith is a gift of God. That's the whole thing. It's a gift of God. In 1 John 5, 1, it says it's believers. You believe because you've been given life. So we have life. We believe the gospel. But the whole thing, the church today works hard. And MacArthur leads this charge that if you're not doing this, this, and this, then you should question your salvation. Well, then what is your recourse? If you start questioning, I don't know if I'm really saved. What do I do? Believe the gospel. I did that. But I don't think I'm really saved. Then you run to the altar every week, you know, in the constant circle. Lord, you know, right. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's just, it's damaging. You know, when you just understand the truth. Listen, and, you know, people accuse me of, obviously, without knowing what I teach, to say, well, you're teaching, giving people license to sin. You haven't listened to much of my teaching, okay? You have, if you think that, but I'm telling you, grace is free. And when you understand that you're secure in your position, it motivates you to live for God. Okay? God loves you unconditionally. Always will. That position will never change. But he really spanks hard when you get out of line. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Why does he chasten you? Because he loves you. And he wants the best for your life. Anybody else? Tough subject. Next week, we'll get into the second part. It's good. Once you see this passage put together, it's, it's pretty encouraging. You know, James is trying to do something totally different than Paul's doing. Paul's saying, you, you're saved by grace. And James says, okay, now that you are, you better do this or it's going to cost you. Okay.